0: the King. I got an email this morning from the New York Times. I can't seem to unsubscribe from all of the many lists that they send out. And this morning's email said, how many of these famous faces do you know? It was their apparently annual faces quiz. And there were images of a number of recognizable celebrities, or at least they probably should have been recognizable to me. We are in a sermon series leading us towards Christmas during Advent where we have looked at images from the Old Testament of the savior. And I hope because the answer is a little bit Sunday schoolish here in church that you've been able to identify these these images as pointing us to Jesus. These images have given us clues as to who the Messiah, who Jesus would be in the flesh of who he is now, and of who he will be when he comes again. We just recited Psalm 24 together, which sums up the anticipation of these images with a question. Who is this king of glory? I'd like to think that our lesson from Romans is Paul's answer to that question. In one very long sentence, he answers... Jesus. Jesus is the king of glory. Our gospel reading from Matthew tells us just how this king of glory came in the flesh. Turn with me in your leaflet either to page four or you can also use your pew bible and turn to the gospel of Matthew. While Luke's version of the Christmas story we often think of when it comes to the Christmas pageant, which we had at the earlier service, it centers around Mary and the angelic visitation to Mary. Matthew's gospel begins with a very long recitation of a Jewish family tree from Abraham to King David to Joseph to Jesus, and then he centers his first part of the story on Joseph Verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but. Do you ever feel like life throws you some buts? Do you ever feel like things are going well, but? We had our in laws in town with us, and the but this morning was that there was no hot water. Things were going fine, but we see right off the bat that Joseph has a problem, a but. Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, meaning they were engaged, but she was pregnant, unplanned. And the rest of our story, as it unfolds, turns our attention to how Jesus would respond to this situation to this crisis in front of him. And it, I think, directs us as to how we can respond as we face the tough circumstances and decisions in our life. Look down at verse 19 and we will see what Joseph had in mind. I think it's likely as he considered what he would do that he he saw two paths before him, two choices. One that was respectable and one that seemed risky. The respectable choice, of course, was to save face, avoid scandal, and to divorce Mary. The respectable choice was actually allowed by Jewish law law, that he could send Mary away. The respectable response, if that seems harsh, also seemed to have Mary in mind, that he wanted her to avoid unnecessary public disgrace. And then there was the risky response. The risky choice was to give up reputation, to have family outcry a scandal. The risky response was to keep on the path to the altar and marry Mary. The risky response was not just to stay by Mary's side, but to trust that what she said about an angel and the Holy Spirit was indeed true. It was to have faith that God might be up to something other than than what Joseph had in mind. Now, I think that Matthew gives away what Joseph's choice will be. In verse 19, it says, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law. Some translations say because Joseph was a just man, an upright man, a righteous man. And I think Matthew is signaling that Joseph is going to do the right Thing. He'll make the right choice. And as we see at the conclusion of our reading, when he woke up, he did make the right or the righteous choice. So what happens in the intervening verses? If verse 18 gives us the but, it gives us the problem, what was the solution? Well, We see in verses 20 and following, not what Joseph had in mind, but what God had in mind. We see that in the midst of the voices in, Jesus, in Joseph's head of the competing interests as he considered the cultural response to his situation, he instead heard the voice of God. So what did God have in mind? As a child, I loved the far side and my favorite annual Christmas present was the Page a Day Far Side Calendar, Singular Panel Comics. One of my favorites pictures God as a chef in the kitchen cooking up the earth. The spice rack behind him has containers labeled birds, reptiles, trees, light-skinned people, medium-skinned people, dark-skinned people, and a final spice shaker in his hand, shaken over the world, labeled jerks. The thought bubble in the caption reads, and just to make it interesting, Here's the thing God is nothing like that. At times we think that God is playing a joke on us. We think that God, at worst, has malicious intent, that God is random, capricious, whimsical, like a chef in the kitchen. But here's what Scripture tells us about God God is not human that he should lie, nor a son of humans that he should change his mind. Does he speak? and then not act, does he promise and not fulfill? For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. What God has in mind is quite different often than what we have in mind when we're facing tough situations and tough choices. See, for generations, God has promised his people that he would save them and in the midst of the Jewish people stuck in the patterns of old things, he is doing something new, a new thing that fulfills these old promises. And the rest of Matthew's gospel is a recounting of all of the ways in which Jesus's life and ministry and saving death on a cross fulfill those very promises of old. Instead of sending someone to save the world, Instead of sending someone, a king, a military leader, a judge, as he did in the Old Testament, God will come Himself. The king of glory will come in the flesh. Our passage tells us he'll be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Remember, if you are looking at your Pew Bible, that there's 17 verses that come before verse 18. And if you were to look at it, and we didn't read it, it is a very long list of some hard to pronounce Hebrew names. It's a family tree. And this new thing that God was doing with a very old chosen people is he is adding a new name to that family tree, Jesus. A name that we're told means that the Lord saves. This is the promise of Advent and Christmas. That in the midst of old things, God is doing something new. That in the midst of our tough situations where we feel like we might be repeating the old options, the same choices, God has presented a very different response. Indeed, God has shown that he has come to be with us in, those midst of, in the midst of those crises and tough decisions of our lives. So as we consider our own lives and our feeble attempts to trust God, our feeble attempts to have faith, our feeble attempts, attempts to make the right choices. I want us to consider for a moment before we close, what do we have in mind in those moments? What are the prevailing priorities in your matrix of decision-making? What are the thoughts and fears that weigh heavy on your heart and your mind? What are the anxieties that seem to paralyze you in moments of decision? Beyond those voices that perhaps are bouncing back and forth in your head, what are the voices in the culture, in the world around you that seem to be swaying you in one direction or another? What are the voices that seem to be presenting attractive options as you make decisions? Do those voices in your head and in the world around you, do they speak louder than God's? My daughter Molly is four, and she went to Vacation Bible School this summer for the first time. And the celebrity in our family now is Grace Glade, who Molly refers to as her church school teacher. And one of the things that Molly learned from Grace in the midst of Vacation Bible School She came home and told me at the end of one of the days. She said, Daddy, guess what I learned today? Inside my heart, there's someone helping me talk. She paused for four-year-old dramatic effect. It's God. And of course, like most parents, I immediately wrote it down so that I wouldn't forget it so I could use it in a sermon later. Not entirely true. We wrote it down because it was adorable and because it reminded us of something that we need to be reminded of. That God being with us means that in those tough situations, in those moments of crisis, those moments of decisions, God has promised that he will be with us. Yes, helping us to speak, helping us to act, helping us to make the choices that he desires for us because he has our best in mind. See, Joseph makes the right choice not because he has weighed the options, not because he has made the spreadsheet with the pros and the cons, not because he has done the math, but because he listens to the voice of God. It's not because he has considered the Jewish law and said, what is the the most correct thing to do, most righteous thing to do according to religion? not because he feels guilty, but it's because he hears good news from an angel. Charles Spurgeon writes, the law is for the self-righteous to humble their pride, but the gospel, the good news, is for the lost to remove despair. How often do you feel like you are in despair when you're in that crossroads of decision-making, as if you wish you had a word from outside yourself to direct your steps. Uh, The prayer, which I forget who I've stolen it from, but the prayer that I have come to love preaching or come to love praying before I preach is may the spoken word be faithful to the written word and may we encounter the living word, Jesus Christ. And so while I don't think we should walk out this door expecting an angelic visitation We do, as those who follow Jesus, have the ability to experience God with us. We do have the ability to hear God's voice through the spoken word, through the written word as we open up scripture together, and yes, as we encounter God's very presence in us and with us, and here at the table as we receive the body and blood of Jesus Christ. It's interesting that there is a common refrain to these Christmas narratives. Luke's gospel, Matthew's gospel, it's actually the most common command in all of scripture. Do not fear. I think that might be the best summary of the good news of Christmas. Do not fear. Do not be afraid in the midst of tough situations and hard choices because God is with you. Do not fear when life seems overwhelming and there is not a good choice before you. God, Emmanuel, is with you. Our passage closes with an interesting sentence. Talking about Joseph, it says, and he gave him the name Jesus. When I first read that, I thought, well, of course he did. The angel told him to do that. He's following directions. But it goes beyond that because, see, in Jewish culture, naming had great significance. Think back to Genesis. God creates the world and he entrusts humans with naming the creation. In Joseph's culture, the right of naming was an important one for a Jewish father to name their child. But think back to the beginning of our passage. The great but of this story is a question of paternity. And so the question sits before Joseph, not just will he listen to the angel, but will he give this child a name, thereby claiming him as his own? I think that that's a question for us. Do we claim Jesus as our own? Do we call him Jesus, meaning the Lord saves do we call him Jesus, asking, Lord, will you save me? The good news of, Jesus, of Christmas is that we do not have to be afraid because Jesus, indeed the God of the universe, claims you as his own. We don't have to fear because there's great news contained within this simple passage. We read that God does the miraculous, that God does not bring shame, that God promises to save us, that God promises to fulfill, that God will be with us, that God has our best in mind, and that God invites us to claim him. The good news is that God has you in mind. Amen. Please rise.